0: A, it's a bit of an intense passage, right? Jesus' words, uh, particularly there in that middle section, maybe we're okay with like the, you know, the first, you know, what, 38 to 37? 38 to, uh, to you know, we're okay with, or sorry, 38 to 37, that doesn't make sense. 38 to, um, 38 to 41, we're okay with that. We're like, okay, that's fine, right? Jesus kind of rebukes the disciples a little bit. And we're okay with the end where it talks about living in peace and saltiness or whatever. But like that middle section, we're like, whoa, Jesus. And I think a lot of times people say things like, oh, you know, I'm fine with Jesus. I just have a problem with the church. And it's like, have you read this passage? Like he's like, cut off your hands, gouge out your eyes. Like, you know, <laughs> he's like, anything that stands in the way of me, like get rid of it out of your life. And it's like, whoa, hold on. That's that's a bit intense, Jesus, right? And so, like, yeah, let's just dive into it. Let's let's jump in. All right, so let's just go ahead, uh, first off, and we're going to read just verse 38. All right, so in verse 38, it gives us kind of the context of the story. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. All right. Even there, there's, there's a lot there. And I think it's important, probably, that we look at the backstory, right? Because Mark has already you know, been speaking for the last you know, eight and a half chapters. And he's been saying some things, right? And even in chapter nine, in our immediate context, we have some clues, possibly about John's attitude and why he says what he says, right? So if we go back, just even to verses fourteen to twenty-nine, we find this story of where the disciples they've they've come down the the some so, um, Peter James and John have seen Jesus all of a sudden like be glorified, uh, I, sorry, I, I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to unpack that. You can read that, but they, they've come down the mountain, right, and all the disciples are gathered there, and they've been trying to cast out a demon, and they can't do it, right? And one of the important things we learned even there a couple weeks ago is that sometimes in our world we struggle with that idea that, like, well, demons, oh, it's probably epilepsy, right? That was one of the things that we talked about in, in, in that week, but what, one of the things that we realized was that actually Jesus knows the difference, between epilepsy and demon possession and that there is a real spiritual world and there is a real spiritual battle uh, that, that is happening in the world around us right and so if it's ep- epilepsy we can be certain the Bible would have said, hey a kid had epilepsy right but it doesn't say that it says there was a demon and these these disciples they've been following Jesus they've been they've been walking with him, they've been at his feet they're trying to cast out this demon but they can't do it. And in the end Jesus goes, well this kind of this kind of demon can only be cast out with prayer or if you read some of the other um, gospels it says prayer and fasting right that that's this is you know uh, kind of a a... anyway not to unpack that but just to say for context they weren't able to do it they tried but they weren't able to do it and then as we continue reading right we get to um, chapter 9 verses 33 to 37 and what do we find we find the disciples arguing about who's better (laughs) which one of us is greater You know, and like, what a conversation. And we we might think, you know, like I would never do anything like that. Of course you wouldn't, right? You would never do anything like that, Um, right? Liar. Um, You know, we just do it in more subtle ways. But these guys are, are sitting there arguing about like, who's the greatest? Like, well, I mean, I'm pretty good. Well, you know, I think I'll sit at the right hand of Jesus. Right, and like, so we've got, we've got some two issues going on there. One, they couldn't cast out a demon. The other one, they've obviously got some issues with uh, their security, like they need to feel better or superior than other people or to feel like they're the most important. And then we get to this passage where John says to Jesus that they saw somebody casting out a demon. So this guy has been able to do something they couldn't do. He was casting out a demon, but then they're like, wait a second, but he's not in our group. That's not right. Now, I do want to take one moment just to say, Jesus handles, what well, we're going to read, Jesus handles this very gently, which tells me this is honest, like with these guys. There's some, like, you know, I don't think oftentimes we think about our own arrogance and our own pride or the own, the whole, why we are offended, right? Oftentimes what offends us the most is when people act like we do <laughs> or do things that we do. It annoys us the most or offends us the most, and we don't really realize it. I know that in my life oftentimes when I get the most irritated with somebody when I really think about it it's something I'm probably prone to do as well. Right? And so I think we kind of have some of this going on where like they may not even really self-realize it. They feel like, "Hey, how do we know this guy's, you know, okay? Like what he's doing, is that all right? Is that fine? Like should he be doing that?" You know, I think there's probably a part of them that that's a genuine sort of like well, how can we know this guy is, you know, okay? Like how can we know this guy like actually is following you Jesus or whatever and and yet I think also because we've read previously in the text their attitudes I think there's probably some a bit more going on under the surface here where they're kind of going like wait a second I'm not sure I'm okay with this guy being able to cast out demons when I can't do it right and so Jesus I think actually handles it fairly gently kindly he doesn't get nasty or mean with them Um, he 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 again handles it well And so as we keep reading, what we see then is is what Jesus says, is don't stop him. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. All right, so we've seen the disciples' attitude. Right, John specifically, and I think he's kind of speaking on behalf of everybody. Right? We've seen John's attitude towards this guy who is casting out a demon, and then we see Jesus' response. And I think with, within this, one of the things that Jesus sees is maybe a competitive spirit in them, that they feel a, a competition there. And so like, you know, he says, don't stop them. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. And as I was thinking about that, it can be easy, I think, to read that passage and to just kind of get judgy about, you know, with the disciples and not to take that moment to kind of step back and self-reflect. And here's what I was thinking. I think most of us, because at least I can only speak for the West, because most of us have grown up in the West with, like, you know, free market capitalism and all this. Now, just to say, like, this is see this as just a gentle critique here, (laughs) is one of the things that capitalism teaches us to do, for good or bad or whatever, is to see most everything through the lens of competition. Everything is a competition, right? That's how how people sell you things. (laughs) They convince you that you need it because other people have it, right? And if you don't have it, well then your life isn't complete, right? Even that, it's through the lens of competition. Whether that's then when we're, when we're at work. How, you know, like you've gotta work harder than the next person so that you get the promotion. Well now, what happens? It's gonna be a struggle to see that guy sitting at the desk next to you as a friend instead of just a competitor, right? Because he's competing for that same spot that you are and you've gotta beat him or her, right? Competition ends up kind of fueling everything we do. And I can stand up here and be like, oh. That doesn't happen to people like, you know, in a job like me. We're also very humble, all right? No, look. What I can say is oftentimes you go, look at that church over there and how many people they have. Why don't we have that many people? Or what are they doing? Or you know, like, well, what if they steal, you know, we couldn't possibly do an event together because what if they steal some of our people? Or you know, like, and and it's like, here's what happens. <laughs> It's in those moments, I'm just being honest with you guys, like, I have to have those self-reflective moments that say, you fool, (laughs) that church is not your enemy. Those are people that want everybody else to know Jesus too. They are your friends. And the thing is, is as I've gotten to know them, it becomes easier, right? When you know the people and you go like, you know what, there is not a malicious bone in that person's body, (laughs) right? They are the most, you know, and, and but I think it is one of those things. Like We all struggle with that in our lives as viewing everything through the lens of competition. And it, let's be honest, social media does not help that problem. Now, some of us aren't super active on social media, right, um, for, for various reasons, um, whether that just be lazy or whatever, you know, hand up, or whatever, um, you know. But let's not pretend that social media, again, doesn't thrive on that showing everybody uh, you know the perfect vision of yourself or version of yourself, so that everybody looks at you and goes, "Wow, that's amazing, right You know people with their you know perfect holidays in in Spain or Or whatever, you know, and taking their perfect selfies when five minutes earlier their kids were going absolutely berserk, but you don't see that in the photo, right? Because you have to show, look at how we have everything together. We have it all together. And this competition actually heaps enormous amounts of pressure onto us, which I actually think leads to deep anxiety, this competitive spirit that exists within the West, this constant drive to have more this con- than the next person, this constant drive to have a better car, to have you know a faster internet, this, this drive to have you know the the latest and the greatest, this drive to have the most obedient children, or I need you know I have to fit the mold, or I've got to be smarter than everybody else. This drive is crushing, and this competitive spirit. When everything is competition, there is no peace. It becomes very difficult to have peace with other people when I view them as a competitor to my happiness. Rather than actually maybe the gateway to it. Living in peace with God. Living in peace with myself, with other people. And we'll come back to that. But for the moment, that's just where I I wanna stop, is that I think competition, though, here's the thing. I think really often it boils down to our need to feel like we are worth something, like we're valuable. All right, and here's what I just wanna say in that, as we've had this kind of discussion about competition. You are valuable, and no amount of stuff no amount of things that you can accumulate, no amount of success in your job changes that fact because here's why scripture says that you are valuable and worth and have infinite worth. Because you were created by God in his image and you were loved by him. And that is enough. That is enough. As Christians, we believe that is enough. Because when we turn our eyes back to that, it brings peace. And I no longer view other people as my competitors because I don't need to strive for that value and that worth. We forget where our worth and our value come from because the world is loud and noisy. So in a culture of competition or we feel like we need to be part of the exclusive group or the unique, or we need to be unique or elite or somehow we need to be better than those on the outside. These words from Jesus are for us too. And so Jesus speaks to the disciples there and he says to them, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And so what we see is that this guy, this man, you know, whatever his name is, who's doing, who performed this miracle, he's not doing it for his own self-glory. He's not doing it Um, you know, to make money or, or something like that. He's doing it because he's seen Jesus. He's met Jesus. And so he's not the disciple's enemy. He is their ally. And they need to see him in that light. And so I think it does raise the question, how do we recognize the follower of Jesus? Right? Because Jesus says there, like, hey, look, if he's doing stuff in my name, ex- you know, accept him and, and, and allow him to go on. The problem with that is, like, you know, like, <laughs> is that there are other places in Scripture we have to balance that with, right? With discernment of asking, well, what is, what is a follower of Jesus, right? Because we can come to, um, there was a guy in Acts chapter 8, right? So in the book of Acts, um, it tells us all about kind of the beginning of the early church, Right, in Acts chapter 8, there's a story about a guy named Simon the Sorcerer. What a name, right? I mean, it sounds like he's straight out of like Harry Potter or something, right? So so Simon the Sorcerer, right? He comes along, the disciples have been performing miracles. He comes along and he's like, All right, I want to do that too. How much is it gonna cost? (laughs) And it says like he thinks he can make a whole lot of money if he can go around and go, Here's your healing, and here's your healing, and one for you too. You know, like he sees like just Like, hey, the money, I mean, he can like, I just imagine in his head, you know, he's just kind of looking up into the sky and just seeing the, you know, the money fall down from the heavens onto him. If he could do this. So he's like, look, I will pay you anything. Just give me this ability to do this. Right. And, and, and he gets a serious rebuke it says like, uh, you better be careful, buddy, because things are not going to end well for you. If you've got this kind of attitude, Right. And I'm obviously paraphrasing there, um, you know, OK? So, so right there, there's a guy who wants to do miracles in Jesus' name, but he is not a follower of Jesus. And the text makes that very clear. So we do need to be discerning, right? There's another passage that's really interesting as well, and I think even more similar. It's out of Acts chapter 19. So same book, um, different story. You've got these guys called the Seven Sons of Sceva, right? Again, that's a pretty ominous title as well, the Seven Sons of Sceva. Um, wow, why, why do these guys have such, like, anyway, right, so the seven sons of Sceva, they try to cast out demons in Jesus' name, so they're going around, like, and they're, like, you know, in Jesus' name, you know, like, in the Jesus that Paul talks about, you know, be healed, and, and this is, like, crazy, like, this could be in a horror movie or something like that, right, because it's, like, they're trying to do this, they think they're big shots, and the demon just turns around and goes, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? and then attacks them, and they run away naked, right? It's like, it's an intense story, right? Um, So like, crazy story, all that to say, the magical use of Jesus' name, it does not somehow equate somebody to being a follower of Jesus, okay? So it does not mean, just because somebody's going around going, in the name of Jesus, be healed, or, or whatever, that they're a follower of Jesus. So I think what we can do is we can take those pieces from elsewhere in the Bible, and say, okay, Jesus Jesus obviously sees this man and goes, this guy is wanting to follow me. And he's able to perform this miracle because he is my follower. And so the disciples are wrong to criticize him. They are wrong to try and exclude him, to make him stop, because Jesus is like, this guy's on our team. He's not competition. Right? Right? And so the issue is not necessarily the practice of the exorcism going on here, but whether or not a person who isn't one of the 12 disciples can still be a true follower of Jesus in this moment with the right to minister in Jesus' name. That seems to be the issue going on in this section. They are trying to stop somebody from being like Jesus. And again, I don't think they would have articulated that. I don't think like, that was like an outward thing. I think that was what was going on in their heart. And Jesus recognizes that. And he stops them and says, hold on a second. And so I think for us, this Jesus' answer for them is that anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, we need to receive them until they prove Otherwise. But the benefit of the doubt needs to be given. If somebody says, hey, look, I'm a follower of Jesus, I wanna follow Jesus, okay, great, come on in, welcome. And if they show themselves to be Simon the Sorcerer, well, then you go, hold on, we got a problem. But if they're like this guy, like, like welcome. And look, I don't think this is a huge problem. Really, I, I don't in Galway. But I think about all the other churches that are meeting right now. They are not our enemy, guys. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I hope you see them that way as well. That we pray for the other churches in our community. That we pray for other followers of Jesus all over this area that may not be a part of our Sunday gathering here, but they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here's what I think think we see. Just kind of to say Following Jesus is inclusively exclusive. (laughs) And here's what I mean. Jesus makes some really hard claims, and we're about to walk through those. Jesus makes some really difficult claims. He does not just say, like, hey, whatever, keep doing whatever you want to do, and as long as you say you follow me, everything's great. He's like, no, right? We've already walked through this, where it's like, hey, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Right? He makes some really exclusive claims about who he is, and he says, here's how you follow me. But that's for everybody. But it's for everybody. There is not a single person who is not invited to the kingdom of God. There is not a single person who is not invited to come to Jesus and to follow him, to know him, to be like him. That invitation is open to every single human being on this planet. And so, following Jesus, that's why I say it is inclusively exclusive. Anyone who wants to be with Jesus, anyone who wants to be like Jesus, anyone who wants to do what he did is welcome. It's welcome. And so then Jesus goes on to warn the disciples about how they act, about the things that they do that could cause someone like this man to stumble. All right, so let's walk through this, this next section, 42 to 48, 42 to 48. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Whew, okay, Jesus. (laughs) That's intense. That is intense. Like, let's just look. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Whoever thought Jesus wasn't confrontational or didn't say intense things, like exhibit A. And when he talks about a millstone, I don't know if like, you've ever seen a millstone. I know like this is like grinding wheat isn't like a thing that we really do anymore. I mean, maybe, maybe, you've, got, maybe you've got the tools, maybe you do it, I don't know, but I very seriously doubt it, right? And, and millstones came in various sizes. There were ones that even just one person could use but that is not this. This type of millstone, the Greek word that Jesus uses here, that Mark translates um, here, is for a millstone that had to be turned by like an animal, right? So we're talking like a millstone Right, and think about it. Like if you if you drink coffee, you've got a burr grinder, right? What happens? It like crushes the you know it crushes the beans down, and, and and there they come, right? Think of it kind of like that. So you've got two stones, like huge stones, and you turn them on, and they grind each other, and they like you know they, that's how you make your flour, right? Okay. So this is like we're talking like a stone like this, okay? And Jesus is saying, just put it around your neck and throw you into the sea, like like you know he's like that would be you'd be better off if that if you did that than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, Jesus has talked about children already previously, but this seems to indicate, and again, the Greek grammar, um, people who are better at that than me would tell me that this seems to indicate what he's talking about is people who want to follow Jesus, particularly people who are young in their faith. And so what are the disciples wanting to do? They're wanting to take a guy who's young in his faith, right, and say, stop doing what you're doing. You don't get to do that. We do. That's for us, you just go, go away. And Jesus says, hold on a second. If you're gonna cause him to stumble, if you're gonna cause him to stop following me, you might as well put a millstone around your neck and hop into the Sea of Galilee. Guys, I think we need to be really careful about that. And here's why I say that. We, we tend to swim <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a culture That just kind of says, you do your thing, other people do their thing, and hey, you know, like you do you. Let's take that for a moment. You do you. Can you ever really just do you? (laughs) Sorry, that's like, no, okay? Here's what I'm saying no. Everything we do is relational. I am who I am because my parents are John and Robin Walton. I, f- I hear my dad in me all the time. I can't help it. It's who I am. Right? So, even there, we become who we are, often because of our parents, because of the people that we hung around, right? Because of the, you know, the people that told us we were amazing, the people that made fun of us. You know, whatever it is, we all become who we are because of our past experiences and because of what has been done to us. Every, like, it's relational. And here's the thing, the Bible describes sin as relational as well. You never just do something that only affects you. There is always a knock on effect. Right? If I choose, let's just say, for instance, this would never happen. But normally I I would come home sometime around five o'clock. And so then, like, you know, I can kind of help watch the girls or something like that, well, or help make dinner, you know, one or the other, kind of whatever, whatever needs to be done. But if instead I decide I want to work a little longer and I come home at six, did that only just affect me? It was a decision I made, but I can tell you it affects the whole family and it throws everything off. Now bedtime gets pushed back because dinner's later. And now the kids are grumpier because they didn't get to bed. And now, you know, like, again, it's all, there's a knock-on effect. And that's a really silly or simple thing, but to say that happens in everything that we do. And when we choose to sin, it has that knock-on effect, right? I mean, like, we can go to Exodus 34, or, yeah, 34-7, Right? 34, six is that nice passage that talks about how God is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he forgives people to the thousandth generation. But he punishes the wicked to the third and fourth generation as verse 7. We don't usually like that one. But here's the thing. Sin is relational. And when we choose to sin, especially in big ways, it can have a generational knock-on effect. Okay? So here's what I... I we, Again, for the sake of time, we're going to stop there and just say sin is relational. Sin, so we tend to think of sin as personal and individual, but my sin has consequences, not just for me, but for other people. And my sin may cause other people to stumble in serious ways. Think about the amount of people that I know with deep father wounds and mother wounds. I mean, look, there's a whole lot of people walking around with that. Like sin has consequences. The choices that I make affect others. As much as I wanna believe the lies of an atomized and individualized way where my choices don't affect other people, it's just simply not the case. So when I choose to see others as competition, in the kingdom of God, when I choose to marginalize others for my own sake, it affects them for sure, but it also affects me. Because sin is not only relational, it is individual as well. My choices affect me as well. They don't just affect other people. And so we get into this section then where, where Jesus says, like, look, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and so on. Okay, and we'll go through those things. But just to say, does that sound familiar to you? Like, have you heard that before? Like this passage? About, like, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. This is a common thing that Jesus taught. Right? In the Gospels, we find it in more than one place. Like, even in Matthew, it shows up two different times. as two different teachings of Jesus. Okay, so in the Sermon on the Mount, that's kind of probably the more famous one that we think of, right? Jesus goes through this in, 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 I think it's Matthew chapter 5, where he talks about this. It might be 6. It's either 5 or 6. Apologies, my my brain, um, this morning. Um, But, like, we see it show up. This teaching must have been, in my mind, a regular teaching of Jesus, right? Because I think sometimes we think, like, oh, Jesus just, like, everywhere he went, he taught something new. It's like, no, I think Jesus repeated a lot of the same things over and over because he was talking to different people. And even there, we tend to be, as human beings, pretty thick sometimes, right? And when something is so new and radically different that it just, like, blows the mind, we often need to hear it over and over and over, right? And this is one of those things I think Jesus taught over and over and over because we see it show up in different places in the Gospels. Like I said, it shows up twice in in the Gospel of Matthew, Why do we think that Jesus put so much emphasis on this? To say something like, if your hand causes you to stumble, whack it off. Saw it off. I don't know, cut it off. Like, do whatever you need to do. Get rid of it. And not only that, what does Jesus even mean? Is he really serious? Like, because I don't see a lot of Christians hobbling around with no feet trying to get around. I don't see a lot of Christians with only one hand or, you know, that have plucked out their eyeballs. Like, is Jesus serious here? Is that really what he wants us to do? Do we need to bring a saw next week to church or a spoon to gouge out our eyes? Like, you know, and we can just take turns and help each other out. Like, is that, like, is that what we need to do? No, no, okay? There is a bit of hyperbole here. All right, and so as we walk through this, I think we need to walk through it with that in mind. How do we cause other people to stumble? Well, we tend to do it with our hands, with our feet, and with our eyes. Right? With our hands. We cause people to stumble by the things that we do and by the things that we grasp for. Because often the things that we grasp for come at the expense of other people. I really want that promotion I am grasping for that promotion, and so I stiff-arm the guy next to me while I grab for it. We use our hands so often to take. It's interesting. One of the the themes that you read in the Bible, and it's in, in the Old Testament in particular, and it's never good, is this idea of seeing and taking. Right? They saw the fruit, and they took it right? Genesis, Genesis 3. You see it, like, you see it in other places, but just to say, this idea of taking, of seeing something, envying it, wanting it, taking it, right? We use our hands, our eye, or sorry, our feet, the places we go, the places we go, right? Where our feet carry us, sometimes they carry us into places that are just not good situations, they carry us into places that are very precarious and where others may look at us and say, really? They're there? They're doing that? They put us into, our feet put us into situations where we're left with difficult decisions and oftentimes very unethical ones, right? And then our eyes. You think about the things that we desire. Again, that idea of seeing and taking. Envy, greed, so much of it. Like, we are full of it. Our eyes see and desire something. I have to have it. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm completely, you know, like, I don't have any issues with these. It's just you people, right? You know, like, no. Like, look, this is the difficulty for all of us as followers of Jesus to take what Jesus says here seriously. While also not cutting our actual hands off. Because here's the thing. My eyes, I could pluck them out right now and I could still desire things. I could pluck out my eyes, and I could still lust after something because I got a brain that can think about things. I can still cut off my hands and crush people that are getting my way. Right? I can still continue sinning no matter you know, if I cut off my hands, my feet, and gouge out my eyes. So that's not the real problem. I think what Jesus is trying to say here, what he is getting at, is that we must get to the root of sin and deal with it ruthlessly. We must deal with it ruthlessly. That's what he's saying. Do whatever it takes to get rid of this stuff out of your life. We tend to go about our lives just kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, I know it's not great, but you know. I mean, like, I just stood up here kind of and did that, right? I was like, you know, hey, I'm not guilty. I'm guilty of it, too. And it's one of those things. I need to be ruthless about it. And yeah, you know what? I can look at myself, and I can see those problems in myself. And look, again, we're going to get to the gospel and the grace of God in all of this. But I am not satisfied that those things are still in my life. I want to root them out. I want to get them out of my life. Because, you know, I talked about how competition stops us from having peace. And it is when we live as people who are willing to step on others, to push them out of our way, to envy and to show greed and to strive after things at other people's expense. It's when we do that, we will not have peace. When we live that way, you will not have peace. And I think all of us, we desire peace. Peace. And yet we're told, like, well, if you just get to this spot, then you'll be happy. When you just have this thing, then you'll be happy. And we know it's a lie. We know it's stupid. Like, if we have that conversation, we have seen enough people in Hollywood make complete disasters of their life publicly in tabloids to go, we know it isn't like that. But yet we kind of go, I mean, I'm probably the exception. I mean, think about the amount of people that have ruined their lives when they won the lottery. And then how many times you've actually thought, well, if I won the lottery, I'd probably give it all to charity and I would do, it. you know, like, okay, maybe you would. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Not until you bought all those things you thought you needed first. If you've ever seen the, jo- the movie The Jerk, you can insert the joke I wanted to make right there. Um, anyway, that's just to say, we need to ruthlessly eliminate sin out of our lives we need to be ruthless about it that's what Jesus is saying don't be wink wink nudge nudge don't be ho-hum to use another you know don't like don't be ah, sure it'll be grand about it it won't be that's what Jesus is saying it is anything but grand right get it out of your life moving on (laughs) because we've got to get to for the worm shall not die their fire shall not be quenched you know it's better than that than to go to hell Okay, And I felt like Jesus says hell enough times in this passage we probably need to address it, right? (laughs) I know we're at 37 minutes. So like, look, here's what I'm going to say. We're going to be brief as I talk about hell. But what I want to address is the word that Jesus uses here for hell because I think it will help us to understand when Jesus talks about hell what he means. Because, again pop culture has informed enough of our views of hell, or if you've read Dante's Inferno, I suppose, too, like you had to read it for school or something like that, right? I mean, you get this idea of, right, you know, it's like Satan's torture chamber where he's there with a pitchfork all, to, all the time, like, jabbing you with his r- horns and he's red with a tail. or But I, I don't know. What, I don't know what in your mind how you see all of that. But I think, again, we've, we've seen enough, like, rubbish to, like, manipulate our minds into kind of having this idea of hell that's probably not very biblical, <laughs> um, and is probably has more to do with pop culture than, than anything else, or more to do with what we think Christians believe about hell or something like that, right? Again, hell in no way is Satan's torture chamber. Like, if you read the book of Revelation, he's cast into hell, not as like the, you know, the CEO of hell or something like that. No, he's like there as a punishment, right? So just so you know, he's not like managing the place or something like that. Okay? That is not the biblical view of of hell. All right? So the word that Jesus uses here when he talks about hell is Gehenna. Okay? Now, that in and of itself is probably not very helpful. Okay? But here's what Gehenna is. Right? Okay? So there is a place outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. And that is what Jesus is, is referring to here. So he's, like, saying, like, so really what, what Jesus is saying, if we read the words, if we were listening to it as Jesus said it and we spoke Aramaic, which Jesus would have been speaking, it's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of the Valley of Hinnom. But if they'd looked out into the Valley of Hinnom, off in the distance, right, and they said, oh, there's the Valley of Hinnom, there's no fires. In fact, there's, I mean, there's a cemetery out there. It's a valley. So why does Jesus say that? There has been throughout history, somewhere starting in the 12th century, there was, like a, there was a, a rabbi who kind of said like, oh, Gehenna was this fire pit where um, you know, all the refuse of the city was burning and dead bodies were thrown in there, and so it smelled horrible. And I believed that for a really long time, except it's not actually, archaeology would say that's not true. And again, if there's a cemetery there, Jews would not have been burying their dead, you know, like you know, the high priest who <laughs> would not have been buried in the rubbish dump, okay? Like, who would do that, right? Nobody would do that. You wouldn't bury a president in the rubbish dump. Like, maybe some presidents you would or something. I don't know. But like, <laughs> just saying. That wouldn't typically, right? We show honor to those people. The rubbish dump where like, you know, criminals are burning and it just smells like burning flesh and burning food and all that kind of everything else. Like, you wouldn't put them there, right? Okay? In fact, what they found is the rubbish dump was on the other side again winds play into this as well because it's on like the west side of jerusalem and all the winds would have blown all the smells into jerusalem why would you put a rubbish dump there you put it on the other side where the wind you know so the wind carries the smell away right okay so the rubbish dumps on the other side of the city now coming back to gehenna why then would jesus say these things why would he talk intensely about like do you know what gehenna is the place for you if you act this way right? The Valley of Hinnom is the place for you if you act this way. Because if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, and this is why it's important to see, the Old and the New Testament are intricately connected, okay? And our understanding of the New Testament will in many ways be informed by our understanding of the Old Testament. Because Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here, okay? The Valley of Hinnom was a place of idolatry and human sacrifice, and it was a place that the prophets looked at and condemned and said, that is a wicked, evil place. And so then by the time we get to Isaiah, right, the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 24, it's the very last verse of the book of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. When you get to that last verse, he talks about the Valley of Hinnom, and then he says that it is a place where... Uh, And this is exactly, Jesus quotes him directly, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. That is a direct quote from Isaiah 66, verse 24. This was a place of evil and wickedness where people did unspeakable things to one another. And it became a place where God says, like, my judgment is on this valley. My judgment, this is an unjust it is evil. It is wicked. No good happens here. And so it became a place that if you were a Jew in, in Jesus' time and you heard people talking about the valley of Hinnom, right, you at least would, would, would associate it to a certain degree with curse. Now, I said there was a cemetery there earlier, it's kind of on the edge of, of, of the valley. Right, But in people's minds, they would have seen that. They would have remembered Isaiah. They would have remembered Jeremiah. They would have remembered the stories of the human sacrifice, of sacrificing children literally on an altar to Molech in this valley. That's what was happening. If you really want to read about it, 2 Kings 16.3, 2 Kings 21.6. So the threats of judgment end up being uttered over this sinister valley. This is the picture of hell that Jesus is pointing to here. Think about it, and C.S. Lewis kind of picks up on this um, as well when he, when he discusses hell, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, right? It is this place where, on, like, it's almost as if it's a place where God has judged and said, no good happens here. And people go there, and they're able to just be as wicked and as evil as possible. Where human beings are not becoming better and nicer people, but where unspeakable wickedness happens. It is a place where God's presence is not felt. It's a place of pain and of judgment. So you don't wanna go there. It's not because there's Satan with a pitchfork poking you all the time, right? It's this idea of like, imagine a place filled with such selfishness, with such wickedness, is such evil and contempt for God. And imagine that going on for eternity. Where the worm does not die. Like, right? That's the idea of like, this is something like this evil, this wickedness, it just goes on and on and on. And I'm telling you, if you've ever known somebody who's mean, typically they don't get nicer with age, they get grumpier and meaner. So imagine that, like, stretch that out for eternity, right? Like, now, that is like, there's a lot more to be said about that. But I just wanted to unpack the word specifically that Jesus uses here to speak about hell. Again, a lot more that could be said, and we're not going to continue on with that because we need to get to the, <laughs> to the end. So let's read verses 49 to 50 and pick up the pieces. <laughs> 49 to 50. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Now, everyone will be salted with fire. I don't know about you. I read that and I was like, what on earth does Jesus mean? I'm not sure like it's like fully fully clear, right? Because it's one of those like Jesus has just been talking about fire in a bad way, and then he talks about salt in a good way, and this verse is kind of sandwiched in the middle. So what is it? If we go to the Old Testament, again, Um, And we go to Leviticus 2.13. It talks about sacrifices. Before Jesus, right, people went to the temple and they made sacrifices. And one of those sacrifices would be a grain offering. So people would bring their best grain and things. And one of the things they were to do then was to salt the grain before they burned it. Salt is a purifying agent, right? We know that. If you've ever had a sore or something like that, you put a little salt in it. Um, You know, I think like sometimes, you know, you get like like a sore in your lip or something like that. You put a little salt on it and you're like, ah! And then, like, you know, it feels better after a while, right? So, so right, it's a, it's a purifying agent. People knew that then. It purified things, right? And what else purifies things? Fire, right? You get the fire hot enough, you put a metal in there, it purifies the metal, right? It, gets, it burns out all the, all the rubbish or the stuff you don't want in there, you know? So both of those have a purifying element. And so I think you get this idea that the fire here is not about eternal judgment. In this verse but probably the fires of trial and testing in life and how it purifies us. So even the difficulty, you know, Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that he works all things for good, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means all things. That means all the rubbish that happens in your life. And for all of us, to varying degrees, there will be a good amount of it, right? Jesus never promises, if you follow me, you'll never face a trial again in your life. Rather, what is promised is that those trials can actually shape who you become, even in a good way. Some of us have had really terrible things happen to us, really, really awful, wicked, evil things. Those things are not good. They're not good. But God is so sovereign that he can take those things if we let him and shape them and mold them and make something good come from them. Again, they're not good in and of themselves. But God can take that and shape us and mold us even through those those things that other people meant for evil. All right? So salt is good, but salt becomes unsalty. This is what Jesus says in in verse 50. But But if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So we need to be people that salt other people right, that salt our world around us, and we need to be at peace with one another. I talked about in the beginning about how in a world of competition, in a world of consumerism, that it breeds anxiety and not peace. It actually keeps us from peace because they make money off of our discontent, right? It keeps us from Peace, But what Jesus says here is that if you ruthlessly root out these things from your life, it will bring peace. And we don't have to do it on our, on our own, right? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is with us. And he empowers us to root these things out of our life so that we can live in peace. The word that's used there is irene. Okay? And that, I mean, it it means peace. Okay? It can mean absence of war and all of those things. But when we read the Old Testament in Greek, right, there's a Hebrew word called shalom, which means peace. And every time that word shalom shows up, they translate shalom as irene. And so Jesus, when he talks about peace, he has in mind this idea of shalom. What does that mean? Shalom is this idea of wholeness completeness. It's not just an absence of war. It is a peace in every direction of our lives. That's what Jesus is offering through his gospel. It is a gospel of peace. It is a good news of peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? When you read about Jesus, the birth story of Jesus, that's what the angels proclaim, right? He is the prince of peace. As Isaiah 9 says, like, we get this picture. Jesus comes bringing peace. This is the good news of the gospel. You and I long, we hunger for peace. We chase for it in every direction. We step on people. We, get, we, do, all, we do everything wrong so often chasing peace when Jesus all along is saying, I want to offer you peace. And here it is. Here's the peace. And it comes counterintuitively. It comes by giving up. And following me. By not seeing other people as competition, but seeing them as your fellow man. By loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where peace comes from. And so what if I haven't lived in peace? Maybe you're like, man, I have not lived in peace in years. Maybe never. Maybe like, you know, the last few months of your life haven't been marked by peace. What if you don't, like you're like, peace has not been a part of my life. I think it starts then by saying, I need peace with God. That's where it starts. By making peace with God. By giving our lives to him, saying, I will give my life to you, Lord of all creation, Prince of Peace, and trust that in your hands I will find peace. We need peace. We long for peace, and that peace comes through Jesus. And so, if we haven't lived in peace, we want to pick up the pieces of our lives. It starts by asking, what does it look like to bring peace into the places where I've destroyed peace? And as I said, we need to reconcile with God. Through Jesus alone, in humble repentance, I come to him helpless with nothing, and I receive everything in return. I receive that peace. And that peace that I receive from God allows me to go out and to have peace with myself. I don't have to see other people as competition. I don't have to see them as like, you know, as, as something else. I can see them for who God made them to be. I don't have to be driven by that anxiety to have more or to be better. I can be satisfied in Christ, in Jesus, in Jesus. And it starts, and then, you know, again, that allows me then to reconcile with others, to have peace with other people. When I have peace with myself, I can have peace with others. When I have peace with God and peace with myself, I can have peace with others. I can begin to untangle the webs of sin that I've woven. And so... What I want us to do, just as we, we're we're, we're done, like I'm I'm done, lecturing, preaching, whatever you want to say, is to take a few minutes, before we have communion. We're just going to take a few minutes because I think it's one of those. I could say, like, hey, you need to go and you need to think about all these ways that you can have peace with God, that you can, you know, all these ways that you can make peace with other people, the things that you need to do, the steps that you need to take to have peace in those relationships where you don't have peace. I can say, hey, go home and do all of that, but let's be honest. We'll go home and something else will happen and we'll forget about it. Right? Maybe you're not like me, but that's what would happen to me, even as I say that. (laughs) Like, I would go home and something else would happen and I'd forget about it. We're just going to take a few minutes and we're going to do it now. I just want you to take that time to think about that, to ask that question. What does it look like for me to bring peace into the places where I have destroyed peace? How do I reconcile with others? What hurts have I caused? Is there a way back? Have I really tried or am I just making an excuse? And if there's no way back, how can I move forward in the grace and love of God? Because let's be honest, I've said let's be honest like a thousand times in the sermon. Sorry, sometimes you, when you speak, you just become self-aware of things you say. <laughs> but here's what I'm trying to say. Maybe, maybe there's been a relationship that's just too far gone. Right? So it's like, how do I move forward now in the grace and peace of God? Right? These are the questions that we need to ask. Is there a way back? Because we can't change the past, but we can move forward in humility and grace and repentance. All right, so we're just going to take a minute or two. We're just going to ask God to show us those things. Say, where are the places, God, where I have not been a person of peace? All right? So um, after that, then we'll... um, We'll come to a time of communion. I'll, I'll go ahead and just close this in prayer here. Here in a minute or two, but yeah. Anyway, take a minute or two. And do-